This morning I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 26. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. very famous Baptist minister uh, in the last century uh, defined preaching this way. He said it's, uh, it's the hour of sweet torture. Now he wasn't speaking of it from your point of view, but from my point of view. It's the hour of sweet torture. There's a sweetness to preaching uh, in being able to explain God's word, uh, seeing people grow in their love and their knowledge of God lives being changed slowly and incrementally. Uh, there's a sweetness to that in being able to further spiritual good in your souls. Uh, but there's a torture to it. There's a trying to understand it, to, to nuance it, 
to put it in a way that's, that makes sense, that's helpful, to not misfire or place emphasis where it shouldn't be, to construct it in a way that it's explaining, it's applying, it's illustrating. It, it's, there's a sweet torture to it. And yet this is such a unique kind of hour in our lives where you're sitting and you're hearing God's word explained. It's a time where we're trying to bring into tighter focus our understanding of God. You know, like like that old Nikon camera with a long telephoto lens that, that you just turn ever slowly to kind of make the blur go away and, and become very sharp in its focus. This is what preaching is doing. It's trying to explain the nature of God so that you might progress in your faith. So Paul says to the church at Philippi, he says, I'm convinced that I'll continue and remain with you for the progress and joy of your faith. So Paul saw his pastoral role, particularly as a preacher, uh, that you would progress in faith, that you would grow in your knowledge of God. But your knowledge of God wouldn't be just growing in terms of an information dump, but that there would be this affection growing in you, that you love the one you're learning about, that you're growing in joy over all that God has done for us and is for us, that there would be this increase in joy and and in faith. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at God. We're just going to focus on God today. Interesting chapter we have. It begins with the Lord appeared to him in verse 1. And in verse 33, it wasn't read, but it says the Lord departed from him. And all through the whole chapter, it has God running through it. So I just want to tighten our focus on the nature of God. Uh, Sometimes a lot of sermons are driven more by how you respond to God. Some sermons are more about, this is who God is. Just holding him up, like in Isaiah 40. Behold your God. Here is who he is. And I'm hoping that in kind of tightening our focus on God, that you will progress, both in your knowledge of him, wow, I didn't know that about him, or I'm thankful for that about him, but also that your souls will be stirred, that you love him more as you know them more. So there's four truths we're going to look at in this passage. Uh, The first one is simply this, uh, that the Lord desires to be in intimate fellowship with you, a close communion. Many of us have kind of a, a more distant view of God. He's in heaven and we're on earth, and it will be only until the final day that we're just this. No, God desires a close proximity to your soul. And I don't mean that in some theoretical terms. I mean that in very experiential terms. He wants to be a father to us. Uh, But secondly, that God rescues our faith. You see that 9 to 15. We think we come to faith and, and God brings us to faith and we're excited about his justifying grace. And then we take it from there. And it's up to us to make sure that we remain persevering in faith. We're going to find, no, no, no. He's always rescuing us. He's always reassuring us. He's always coming alongside, helping us remain in faith. Our salvation is is from God, start to finish. And then thirdly, we're going to see uh, that the Lord reveals his plans to us. Uh, Yeah, there's no doubt a lot of mystery about God, but he does reveal things to his people so that they might live well in this life. And then last, the Lord listens to the prayers of his people. Listen, we all struggle with prayer. Sometimes you feel like you're just talking to a ceiling that bounces back to you, but no, we find actually that he listens. 
And he actually encourages us to pray, and we'll, we'll see that in the text as well. So we'll cover those four truths about God. My hope is that some of you will just be reminded of stuff you already know. Uh, maybe there are others of you that you might be actually a little challenged, made perhaps even uncomfortable, but that you would see God in a, in a clearer and more focused light. So let's look at the first. The verses one to eight, the Lord wants intimacy. That is, God doesn't want to be this high and lifted up God alone. He is that, but he wants to be a father to us. He wants to draw near to us. Now look with me at the first two verses again. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Notice the narrator gives us kind of this, um, like a locational marker. He's back at the Oaks of Mamre. That's where he had been dwelling. That's where, you know, in the hills of the promised land. That's, and I think the narrator is readying us because in 19, uh, they're all going to be moving. Uh, those two angels will be going to Sodom, which is just a ways away. So I think he's giving us a locational marker. And while he's at these Oaks of Mamre, he looks up and sees these three men. Now, who are the three men? Well, I'd submit to you that the most common rendering of this would be Yahweh, or God, and these two angels. And they say two angels because we're going to see in 19, two angels go into Sodom. So that probably makes the most sense seeing the two as angels, but the one would be Yahweh. Now, why do I say that? Well, look at the first verse again. It's the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, appeared to him. But not just did he appear to him, not just in the immediately preceding verse, but you see in verse 15, it's the Lord who speaks to Sarah. You see in verse 22, <clears throat> that it's the Lord before whom Abraham stands. You see in verse 33, the Lord departs from him. And you see Abraham get up quick. He gets up quick to, to serve these visitors. Uh, the, the Lord is throughout this entire chapter. So it makes most sense to see that the Lord and two angels have come to visit him. Now, you kind of see it as well because he gets up quick, in haste, prepares this you know, kind of royal treatment in a Middle Eastern style. He over-prepares food. The sea of flour and the, and the calf, just for three men, was a lot of food that he had prepared. <clears throat> Expensive, but he did it in haste. And what we find is that the Lord consents to eat with him. Now, we just read through that and that's no big deal, but let's just pause for a minute. I mean, this is God we're talking about, Yahweh, the creator of all things. He doesn't eat our food. He doesn't need to eat. Why would he consent uh, to sit and have a meal? He created all food. I, I mean, to sit for a meal prepared. Why would he do that? Well, I just proposed to you that he did it because he's showing Abraham, this is the kind of fellowship, this is the kind of covenantal relationship that we have together, that we sit and, and we talk and we know one another. There's an intimacy that I think God is condescending to a human meal so that he would show him, this is the kind of covenantal relationship I want to have with my people. I want to draw near to them. I want them to draw near to me. I want to know them. You know, you get to know people around the table. You get to know the intimacies of life when you have a meal with people. 
I think he's showing us, this is the kind of God I want to be for my people. Close, proximity. Uh, We don't see it just here. By the way, this is the first meal that a human had with God. The first meal. But not just that. Notice, and we'll, we'll read later in, you know, Exodus 24, there's another meal around a covenant that God eats with people. Uh, Gideon, uh, meals are used to establish covenantal, uh, the covenant relationships that we have with God. You go to the New Testament, you have Jesus Christ. When he explains the new covenant that he is forging with his broken body and his shed blood, it's around a table. It's around food and drink. But not just that. Go forward to Revelation 19.7. In that final meal, that Messianic banquet, what's it around? A table with food. God is showing us the whole Bible. It begins with God creating food, being with Adam and Eve, walking in the garden, having a, a close relationship with them. It's around food. It ends in food. There's something significant here that God is getting across to us that I want to be in closeness, in communion with my people. Is this the way you feel about God? I mean, do you enjoy this kind of intimacy with God? Or is this strange to you? How would you describe your friendship with God? Again, many of us think clinical. We think cognitive. We think levels of knowledge. We think ethereal. We think often abstract. He's far, far away. And yet he is showing us, no, I desire to be near you, to be close to you, to love you. Uh, We don't feel that way. We feel ashamed with God oftentimes. We we shrink back. We, we, We walk in sin and we back away from God. And yet there's no shame with God. He's wanting us to draw near. The, this, you, you know this, I think, intuitively. I mean, think about you as parents. I mean, as parents, don't you want to, your kids to know how much you love them? I mean, don't you wish you could just rip their chest open and just to know them intimately and, and for them to know you? Don't, you? don't you want to be so close to them? This is a difficult thing with teenagers, you know, sometimes when they begin to hit those growing years of independence, they close down. They, they don't want to open up as much. They, they kind of back away. You're, you're pleading with them. You're pulling at them. You want to know what they're thinking. You want to know what they're walking through. Your heart is yearning to be close to them. Do we experience that and God not? Where do we get it from? We got it because we're his image bearers. God wants the same thing, and it's really important. God, it'll transform us from having a faith that's more religion to more of a relationship. I mean, if you know that about God, if you know you can walk up to him, even if you're covered with shame, and you can go to him as a father and repent and know that he'll love you and not hold back with his hands kind of crossed, if you know that, it'll change the way you come to church. I mean, you won't be here because it's, well, I got to do it. It's uh, one day a week I, I do it. No, you're going to the one that you love. You want to know him better. You want to understand him more. Or prayer. Uh, prayer. Who wants to pray? Nobody wants to pray. I mean, pray, prayer is very difficult to do. Remember that old, that old quote, I'd rather die than pray? That was from a pastor, by the way, just for the record. But, but when you think about the nature of God and, and who he is and how much he loves you and how much he wants you, well, prayer begins to change. So, so there's an intimacy here, but it's not just an intimacy that God wants to have with us. He wants, to, he wants us to have it with each other. He wants us to be close. 
you know, the, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I think he's referencing our verse. So the writer of Hebrews is looking back to this story that we're reading right now, and he's encouraging hospitality. You know, hospitality is a requirement of the, of a, of the character of an elder to be hospitable, Hospitable is just love for strangers, what the word means. And, 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 and it's really for all of us, right? Didn't Jesus say, when I was hungry, you fed me? When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink? When I was a stranger, you welcomed me in? Uh, in other words, the church that are children of God want to have an intimacy with God, and we want to have that same intimacy with each other. That's what the first few verses of 1 John's about. I'm not talking about entertainment here. Entertainment is a fine thing to do. Uh, but hospitality is a little different. The focus isn't on the food as much as it is on the fellowship. It's on the relationships around the table. It, it's in talking and listening, weeping, laughing. It, it's, it's trying to do spiritual good for one another in the context that a meal gives you. It's to be done with cheerfulness, happiness. It's inconvenient and it can be expensive, uh, but it's essential. So let me remind you of a verse. So the apostle Peter writes to the church and he says, the end of all things is near. Now that's like red lights and alarms. The end of all things is near. Everybody's looking for the exit, right? It puts us all on pins and needles. The end of all things is near. What do we do? He says, be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He says, love earnestly, it covers a multitude of sins. And then he says, be hospitable without grumbling. Be hospitable, invite people in. Hold it, you just said the end's all, the end is near. That's right, God's sovereign over the end. The end's near, invite people in. Well, shouldn't I be prepping and, and getting doomsday bags prepared? No, just invite people in and encourage them in their faith. Shouldn't I be concerned? Hey, Hebrews says the same thing. In chapter 10, 24, he says, let us not forsake gathering together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage each other as you see the day approaching. So here you see the day approaching, and you think it's time to work towards self-preservation. He says, don't bother. Encourage them. That's what we're called to do. Uh, so here you see that God, it, the first thing we see about God is he desires to be intimate with us and he wants us to be intimate with each other in terms of our relationships. Getting beneath the surface, although that's ho- so hard sometimes. Now, you know, this summer uh, we're gonna be having these ice cream on the deck again. That's just a sweet way of trying to get people in each other's homes. Uh, last couple of years we've done it, probably 10, 15 people host, they open their homes, they have ice cream, another 10 or 15 people come. It's just an opportunity to get to know one another and to maybe walk out when I'm speaking here. Uh, later this year I'll be preaching a short series on meals with Jesus. It's amazing how much ministry Jesus did in the Gospels around food. So I just want to take some of those passages in the Gospels and just say this is how Jesus ministered around a meal. Carol and I try most Sundays after church, we have lunch with somebody. Just someone in the church have lunch. And it's a great chance to, again, how are you doing? How's your marriage? How are you doing with God? How's work? What's going on in your, ear, in your mind with the Lord? Remember Nick, many of you remember Nick, a former pastor here, he planted, he's 
one of the pastors we support. He's at Westwood, and we'll be going there this summer. But when he started coming here, he did something that was really unique. He would budget a certain amount of money, and he would just go out to lunch every Sunday with people, just to get to know people. An intentional move towards intimacy with people. Maybe it's something you could be doing. How do you utilize that Sunday after church that you begin moving towards people? So that's the first thing we see about God here. I want to tighten your focus. God wants to be near you. I know that many of you would shrink back at that idea because you look at your souls and you don't want to be drawn near to him. Friends, he's inviting you to come in. I mean, let me encourage you. Go to him. I mean, seek to know him. Ask him to reveal himself to you. But this is the kind of God that the Bible teaches about. Not a distant, cold deity. Okay, the second thing we see about God is that he rescues faith. He, he reassures faith. He bolsters our faith. Oh, look with me at the uh, ninth verse there. He says, then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I'll surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women uh, had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Am I, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? This is a kind of interesting passage here, you know, that, that you see the shift. So here they are, they've had a meal, they're enjoying the meal, and then God speaks and says, where's Sarah? Now when you see God ask a question uh, that he might be confused on something, you wanna stop and ask why is he asking the question? This isn't a question about God really has lost track of his creation. He knows her name. She wasn't there out front. He knows her name. He knows where she is. Uh, when, when God says, where is Sarah, the focus moves to Sarah that he is going to try to reassure her of faith. Now, why do I say that? Because he's asking where she is. Think about in Genesis chapter three, after Adam had sinned, and God says, where are you, Adam? He didn't, get, he didn't lose track of his creation. It was an invitation for Adam to come forward and say, I've sinned against you, I'm sorry. I ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I shouldn't have done it. It's an invitation. God, God's not unaware of his people. So he said, where's Sarah? The focus is shifting on Sarah. He wants Sarah to be encouraged in the same promise, and it's the exact same promise that he gave to Abraham in chapter 17 that Philip spoke about last week in verse 19. He says, you're going to have a son this time next year. You'll have, he's encouraging her faith. He's inviting her to believe in the promise, just like he was re-encouraging Abraham last week. He's encouraging her to believe, you'll have a son, and your son will be a blessing to the nations. What that means is, the curse that fell in Genesis 3 would be overturned by the blessings that a son would bring. So he was promising her, your son will have a descendant, and that descendant will be the one to bring us back to God in fullness. Do you believe that? What does she do? She laughs. Everybody's laughing in these chapters. You know, she, why is she laughing? What's funny going on? Well, nothing at all. She doesn't believe him. 
I mean, you, you see that. The narrator wants us to see she completely disbelieved in God. I, I mean, the narrator tells us that, you know, she's old, he's old, and the way of the woman is past. You say, well, what exactly does she mean by that? Well, she tells us, after I'm worn out, after, and he's old, am I going to have pleasure? What's she saying here? Well, she's postmenstrual. I mean, the way of the woman's gone. She can't have a child. She hasn't even had a, a cycle to have a child. And not that, I think implied by shall I have pleasure again, they haven't been having sexual relations. Shall I have pleasure again? Not just about the child, but about bringing forth a child. In other words, this promise seems patently absurd. I mean, the whole promise of a son who's going to come and bring us back from the curse to blessings, impossible. She thought it was impossible. How many, how many times have you thought that with the circumstances in your life where you just thought, oh, this is impossible. There is no way forward in this one. I mean, what we find in this story here, and, th- and that's why God says to Abraham, he says, uh, why'd she laugh? Is anything too hard for God? I think he's reassuring her. He's not rebuking her. And that's why he says, this time next year, they haven't had sex, and he's telling them they're going to have a child, and it's going to be at this time. So there's a lot going on right there. He's calling her to believe that God has, is anything too hard for God? In Hebrew, that could be translated, is anything too wonderful for God? Is anything too extraordinary for God? Is there anything beyond measure? You can imagine what you can, but does that limit God? Are, is our imagination greater than God's capacity? I think he's just calling her to believe. Now, you notice what she does. She's scared and she laughs. And then she says she didn't laugh. And then God said, but you did laugh. So just a free piece of advice. If God says something, probably good to go with it. You know, I think he may know what's going on. He know, but, but do you know what truth you have here is he knows what's in your heart. He knows what you're thinking. You don't have some like laser shield that God can't see through what you're thinking and how you're feeling and the fears that you have and the struggles that you have. There isn't a shield that prevents. He knows what's going on. That's why we just come forward anyways, because he knows. We don't hide from him. But, but do you see what he's doing? He's bringing her to a point of impossibility to find it. Do you believe me? Do you believe I'm a God who can do the impossible? I think he's asking that. I mean, a lot of us, if you've lived long enough, you're, you're there. I mean, you've faced physical crises that just seem as if there's no end in sight, or maybe financial holes that you've dug that are so deep you don't ever think you're getting out of it, or, or maybe a, a parental situation that there seems impossible for the child to turn, or, or maybe someone hardened to the gospel, and they're so hardened to the gospel that they'll never consider the truth of Jesus Christ. And you just think, yeah, it, it's it's... Yeah, it's too much. This one, we'll put that over there. The other stuff we're praying for, but no, that one's beyond measure. I think he's, I think we're seeing here that no, God is asking you to believe. Not just that you get to pray anything you want, the impossible prayers, and he'll grant them all, but that we believe he is capable of it. 
I mean, I think that's what you see, don't you, when you see the feeding of the 5,000? In the feeding of the 5,000, what happens there? So Jesus goes out to a desolate place, all the people are following him. It says 5,000 men. Now, if they brought their wives and maybe a couple kids, maybe there's 15, 18,000 people. And he says to the disciples, uh, can you give them something to eat? Really? I mean, can you give them something to eat? I don't know what they were thinking of Philip as he brought some fish and loaves, thinking, are you kidding me? I mean, give them something. He puts them in a position that they, it's impossible. He puts them in, he instructs them so that they are in a corner, and you gotta turn to God. You gotta look to God. God, you gotta do it. God, I, I can't do it. Show your glory by doing it. And what God's doing here is he shows his glory by doing it, and he did it with Sarah. Uh, we read in Hebrews 11, 11, it says, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. She questioned the power of God. She questioned the knowledge of God about her own soul. And yet God there is gently wooing. He's encouraging. He's reassuring her faith by asking questions, by putting her in an impossible situation and then revealing himself to be faithful. Think about Thomas for a minute, the apostle. You know, when Jesus Christ in John 20, when he appeared to the disciples, he wasn't with them, and he showed them himself raised. But Thomas wasn't there. Uh, so he came later, and the other apostles said, we've seen the Lord. And he said, I will not believe unless I can see the marks on his hands and I can, I can put my finger in his side, I will not believe. Well, as soon as he finished speaking, who appears? Jesus. And he says, see the marks. Put your hand in my side. He doesn't rebuke them. He reassures them. He comes along. That's what God does for us. Some of you right now, we're wavering in faith. We're uncertain about life. God hasn't answered certain prayers or certain difficulties facing you. Maybe Maybe you don't know what path to choose that's in front of you. I'm encouraging you. He's going to come along. Trust him. Let him reassure. Let him bolster your faith. Don't think that you've got to just marshal up all the energy yourself, but, but you'll be looking to him. God, you are a God that nothing is impossible for. All things are possible do you believe that? I'm, even if you're a Christian here, I'm calling you to believe. Now, I'm not saying this is a blank check to whatever you want, you're going to ask him, and he's able to do it. Because, you know, God's good as a father, and as kids, we ask for things all the time that we don't know the full implications. Carol and I were talking about even uh, last night. If God would have given me everything I've asked for over my life, my life would be ruined. It would be, yeah. Thankfully, he knows best, but he's capable of it. And we, and we believe that. So that's what we see here in God. And the third thing we see about God is that he reveals things to us. Uh, he's not this mysterious, I don't know anything about God. He reveals truth to his people. Look with me at 16. He says, then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. So we're getting ready to move. Abraham went out with them and set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation 
and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So here, they're moving out, they're going towards Sodom, and he asks the rhetorical question, again, why is God asking a question? It's what you always want to ask yourself. And he's asking, should I share this with Abraham? Uh, the, the answer is, for those of you wondering, Yes, he will share it with Abraham, and he tells us why. So what he's going to do is he's going to share with Abraham that he's going to bring judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going to bring severe judgment on their wickedness. Their outcry is great. It's come to the heavens. God will deal with sin, with a righteous judgment, and he's going to share that with Abraham. Why? Well, because A, he says he's a chosen. I have chosen him. He's going to be a great and a mighty nation. In other words, if Abraham is going to be the father of a nation, then should he not know of impending judgment on one of those nations that he is to bless? And we're going to see that he tries to bless the nation by interceding for them. We're going to see that in just a moment. But right here, God is revealing to him what he's going to do. Because he's instructing Abraham, this is how you, as an image bearer of God, this is how you do justice and righteousness. You're seeking the good of the nations. And so, and so that's why God goes down into Sodom. God doesn't need to go down to Sodom to find out what's going on. He knows it already. But he's, he's, he's instructing Abraham. He, he's a committed God, he's gonna weigh, he's gonna evaluate. He will not make a judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah from a distance, far away, uncertain, not fully aware of the facts. He's instructing Abraham. This is what an image bearer does. They do justice, they do righteousness. Yes, they need to bring judgment, but they do it only after investigation, evaluation, weighing. And so he, he uh, shares with Abraham what's going to happen. <clears throat> now, I want you to understand that, that do you see the mercy of God in warnings here? God warns before judgment. Uh, God always gives, people that love you warn you. Your mother, hey, drive slowly. It's wet outside. Wear a coat. My mom was telling me that when I was 50. Wear a coat. It's cold outside. You warn people that you love. God warns his people. He, he warns them of this impending judgment. Now, I, I, get, I get troubled when disasters happen in life, tsunamis, hurricanes, tornadoes, and some TV preacher gets up and tries to explain it, the judgment of God. I kind of tend to cringe at that because I don't know how God moves in these uniquely difficult ways. <clears throat> but I do know that these kind of disasters do act as warnings for us. They're, they're warnings for us, reminding us that we live in a broken world. Our, our lives may be moving very smoothly, but, but we live in a broken world. This world has been cursed. It is groaning for redemption. It is groaning for deliverance. And these are some of the evidences that in fact, judgment will ultimately come. God will ultimately bring all things to a good end. We see this example in Luke chapter 13, verses one to four, when the disciples are asking about, why did that tower in Siloam fall down and kill those 18 people? Here's a kind of a natural disaster, right? An unexplained disaster. Why did they die? Jesus doesn't answer the question. He says, just be glad your names are written in the book of life. Just be glad where you are. In other words, there's a warning that we take on these kinds of issues. 
So there's mercy. Friends, I don't want us here to be neglectful. I, I don't want us to be negligent in understanding that, that this world, while it may be going day after day after day after day like it always has been, there comes a day, and we'll speak to this more next week, but there'll come a day when all things will be judged. We want to be in right relationship with God. We want to be in a covenantal relationship with him. Uh, but secondly, don't you see the mercy of God sharing this with Abraham? I mean, God didn't need to. <clears throat> God didn't need Abraham's help to bring the judgment. Uh, God shared it with him so that Abraham would know, oh, I know about God. It, it, it's this it's a sharing of information. Jesus said the same thing to his disciples. He goes, he goes, I tell my friends what I'm going to do. Uh, th- there's a friendship evidenced here uh, that he, in fact, is telling him. Uh, th- this is a beautiful thing about scriptures. The scriptures aren't a chapter verse manual on how to make decisions on life. The scriptures are fundamentally a story of God saving us. Uh, the Bible helps us understand why we exist, how we exist for the good. The Bible helps us understand the nature of evil, the origin of evil, how evil's conquered. The Bible helps us to live. The Bible is explaining God's ways to us. The Bible explains what God's gonna do, not in precise detail on should I buy a blue or red car, but the Bible's giving us a story of how God has created all things, where we have come from, what gives meaning and value to our lives. So many people are longing, excuse me, so many people are longing to know that. You find that in the scriptures. God reveals to us what he wants to do, what he's going to do, and how to participate with him. That's the kindness of God. He doesn't keep us in the dark. We don't have to worry what's around the corner, he's told us. So we see that God reveals things to us. Fourth and last, uh, the Lord listens to the prayers of his people. Just look with me briefly there at 22, (coughs) excuse me, through 26. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. Let's remember that. He stood before the Lord, it says. Then Abraham drew and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of, of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom, 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. This is a really interesting and difficult little scene here. You have Abraham, and he's now moving in the way that he should. He is trying to be a blessing to the nations, and so he appeals to God on behalf of this nation and the righteous in it. He appeals to God. Don't look at Abraham more merciful or patient than God. It was God telling him of the judgment, which initiates him praying. So God prompted, Charles Spurgeon said, when God wants his people to pray, he sends a carrier pigeon out. It lights on the house. 
They take it and send it back to God and pray. God drawing him to pray. And so he appeals to God based on his character. And this kind of, I don't want you to see the back and forth. If you were to finish the chapter, he says, well, how about 50? And then, and then God says, I'll spare. Well, what about 45? And then he goes 40, 30, 20, 10. Six times. He's not haggling with God. He's trying to see the extent of his mercy and grace. See what Abraham is praying about is God, I want your name honored. You're a just God. I don't want the righteous to be swept away with the wicked. And people think that you're indiscriminate in your judgment. I don't want that for your name. But he also wants the righteous saved. He's praying for the salvation of the righteous. Now remember, righteous and wicked in this. Uh, it, it's drawn from 15, chapter 15, verse 6. The righteous are those who believe in God who believe that God will save through one to come, through the seed of Abraham. It's those longing for a deliverer. The wicked are those who don't care about the covenant. They're not walking in obedience to God. Uh, they're not participating with God. They're doing life their own way. They've got their own self-salvation project going on. <clears throat> and so he's praying for the righteous. I won't choke to death up here, I promise you. Um, he's praying for the righteous to be delivered. And he's praying for the city of lost people to be spared as the righteous could influence them. Do you see what he's doing? He's praying for the nations. It's the knowledge of God's judgment that gives him a concern for the nations. And what is Abraham? Abraham becomes what? An intercessor, doesn't he? He's standing before God, city behind him, and he's interceding for their good. You know, Moses will do that for the people of Israel. Ezekiel will do that. But you know who else will do that? Jesus Christ will do that. He will be a priest, intercessor, standing before the Lord. But, but in Jesus, he doesn't just intercede. He actually bears the wrath of God for us. So he takes the wrath of God. We are behind him. We're under the mercy seat. And so you see here a picture of Christ who will come and stand before the Lord and bear the wrath of God that we might be his children to enjoy the intimacy that God wants, bearing our shame and our guilt. It's an incredible picture we have here of Abraham, of looking and preparing us, um, preparing us for, I've, yeah, I got, I got water. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Um, preparing us uh, to be friends and children with God. Uh, so friends, do you see, do you believe with me that God's judgment on sin will be righteous? Don't you know that his judgment will be meticulous? Don't you know that it will be perfect in every way? But it's delayed. So as we're going to see in Sodom, don't let silence equate your mind with absence of God or absence of judgment. There will come a day. Life will keep going on, but there will come that day. Uh, but, but don't you see this call to be concerned for the nations? I mean, when you think about the very judgment of God falling upon sinners, and we sang it, you know, when, when Jeremy chose um, uh, the last song in the set, Sweet and Awful Place, why, why am I a guest? Why are we guests? because of his mercy and his electing grace. That's why we're at the table. 
because of his grace. But let this move us to be intercessors for the nations, for our own city here in Raleigh. That's why Philip and, and our, our folks who are praying, we're praying for the nations. God, we are the intercessors now. We're praying for God to have mercy. Yes, spare the righteous, and God does. Because when we read next week in 1929, he says, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God heard Abraham's prayer and responded. When we pray, concern for the nation, he hears our prayers. He hears our prayers. So friends, we have a great God here. All I wanted to do is focus a little more on the Lord wants to be intimate with us, wants to be close to us. The, the Lord wants to assure your faith. Don't, do not feel ashamed to go to God and say, I'm flagging in faith, help me. <clears throat> the Lord wants to reveal himself to us in his scriptures. And the Lord wants to and will respond to the prayers of his people. So. Let's just take a moment and ask the Lord to give us grace. Maybe we need to be comforted in this knowledge of God. Maybe we need to be convicted. But let's take a few moments and ask God for strength and grace and ask him to apply this to you in accordance with his spirit, that his spirit would lead you in this. And I'll, I'll pray for us in a minute.